electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead of us today. Investors are spooked by the potential of a capital gains tax hike. We'll look at what we could realistically see and one area of the market that could be a big beneficiary. One area not benefiting is crypto. $200 billion has been wiped out in the market in a day, with Bitcoin plunging below 50000 Is this the beginning of the end of the crypto craze? And what if you could access the money from your paycheck between your actual paydays? One company is helping employers and employees do just that. But we begin with today's markets, and Dom Chu is here with the numbers. Bitcoin's down, Dom, but the broader markets aren't. No, I mean, it was this time, just about right now in the next 10 minutes or so yesterday, Kelly, where we saw some of that selling pressure really exacerbate into the afternoon session because of those tax fears coming to market. We fell fairly precipitously on a relative basis, but as you can see here, we've pretty much made it all back at this level here. The Dow Industrial is still a little bit below what we had yesterday in terms of losses, but the S&P and the NASDAQ, both of these have pretty much gotten back everything they lost yesterday. So again, yes, maybe some traders were a little scared, but it doesn't appear to be manifesting itself in today's market, a bounce back in pretty decent sized proportions. On a one-week basis, these are your out- and underperformers. The real estate and the healthcare sectors, the two real outperformers in trading so far this week. Meanwhile, energy remains the stark underperformer. It's been that way for the shorter to medium term in the last few weeks here. Energy, remember, is still the biggest performing upside sector so far in 2021. And then take a look at these stocks. Coinbase Global, Tesla, MicroStrategy, and Square. Each of these is very closely aligned with the Bitcoin or cryptocurrency ecosystem As those coin prices start to move lower, we have seen an interesting development here. Coinbase is actually up on the day. Tesla, which owns owns, uh, Bitcoin, is actually up about 2% right now. MicroStrategy, also an owner of Bitcoin and its balance sheet, up about 1.5%. And then Square, just down fractionally. So again, some of these Bitcoin ecosystem-type stocks are actually not performing as badly as some of the cryptocurrencies are. It's a dynamic to watch in the coming days and weeks. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you. The capital gains tax is a key tax rate for investors, and raising it could have a broad impact on markets and the economy. Robert Frank is here with a closer look at just how. Robert? Oh, Kelly, the last two times we had a capital gains tax hike, that was in 1986 and 2012, investors sold a lot of stocks and other assets in advance of the increase This time could actually be larger if it happens, since under Biden's plan, that rate would actually double. Now, his proposal to raise the top capital gains rate from 23.8% to 43.4%, that's when you include the Obamacare surtax, that would mark the first time that capital is actually taxed higher than ordinary income or label. Now, it would only apply to those with income over $1 million. So that's about the top 0.3% of taxpayers, about 500,000 tax filers. But that group gets more than half of their income from capital gains. And capital gains income can easily be shifted. As we saw in 1986, stock sales and other capital gains realizations surged by 60% in the months just before the hike. And then, of course, sales and revenues declined for years afterward. 
the Tax Foundation says that on its own, this tax hike would actually reduce tax revenue by about $123 billion over 10 years as investors hold on to assets actually after the hike. The top 1% also owns more than half of individually held stocks. So even though it's a small group, their sales could have a big impact on the market. The combined state and federal rates would be a record high, especially in some of those high-tech states. Take California. If you're a wealthy tech founder or executive and you sell stock, you would pay a combined state and federal rate of 56.7%. New Jersey would be 54.1%. And if you're in New York City... The top combined tax rate on capital gains would be 58.2%. Kelly, interesting to note that both in 86 and 2012, when the capital gains rate was increased, the markets for the rest of those years increased. So just because a lot of people sell doesn't mean that the broader market itself will decline because, as we know, there are much bigger and oftentimes more important factors that could drive the market. So just because we could get a lot of selling doesn't mean the market will go down, as we're kind of seeing today as the market is digesting this. Sure, and I think maybe the interesting point here is that it could have a bigger impact on the economy than it does on the stock market, because it could curb growth or revenues, if you want to say, in the longer run, but the stock market may or may not be that sensitive to it. You know, some of the names, especially in the major averages like Apple, probably aren't going to be that much affected one way or the other. But in the case of what the right capital gains tax rate is, my understanding is that in the literature, somewhere between 18 and 20 percent is revenue maximizing. In other words, if you wanted to get the most revenue possible for the government, it should be somewhere in that range. If you go above that range, which is what this is proposing, it's like you said, understanding you'll actually raise maybe less revenue because it curbs growth. So this isn't, it seems to me, about maximizing revenue, but about making the choice that there's a a need or or more of a desire for high income earners to pay these taxes Uh, in order to, I think in this case, fund the American Families Plan, as opposed to in order to maximize government revenue. Right. And there are competing reasons for all of this. There are some that want fairness. There are some that purely want revenue to fund these programs. And there are some that, as you point out, from an economic perspective, are looking at what is the actual optimal rate to maximize revenue. And you're absolutely right. At a certain point, whether that's above 28, whether it's 30, whether it's 40, It freezes assets. So you actually get people not selling, not investing, because they kind of want to wait for the potential of a new administration or a new government that will reduce those rates in the future. So you're you're right. There is an optimal rate at which you will still have activity, but you'll also raise revenue from capital gains, which are so sensitive because, again, they're discretionary. People who own capital assets can choose when to sell them. And that's what makes predictions around capital gains tax increases so difficult and so tricky. Yeah, absolutely. Robert, we appreciate it. We'll talk more about this now. Our Robert Frank. In fact, while stocks fell on the news yesterday, what is the likelihood that we could see these proposals pass? Who would be harmed by them? And who could be the potential beneficiaries? Joining me now, Jason Trenard is chairman of Strategus Research Partners, a Baird company. And Mark Smith is senior vice president and portfolio manager at UBS Wealth Management. Welcome to you both. So, Jason, what do you think this will likely shake out as uh, as it works its way through Congress? Well, Kelly, I think ultimately it's, it's not probably going to be the top rate at 43.4%. It'll probably be watered down because people will start to talk about what the optimal uh, rate is uh, for government revenues. I do think for this administration, I, I think as you were pointing out, there's an extra element of, of tax increases, an extra consideration, which is not just 
raising taxes to raise revenue to pay for government spending, but there's also um, a social justice angle to yeah. a lot of this stuff, which means that at the margin, they'll, they'll be, in my opinion, a little bit more willing to raise taxes. Um, I think it's also important to note, though, that this would be coming in the context of, of increases in corporate income taxes and uh, an increase in the top marginal income tax rate. It's very different than what it was in 1986 uh, when you had an increase in capital gains taxes, but you had very significant reductions hmm. in the top marginal income tax rate and um, the tax rate on corporate profits. So this, I, I think as a whole, I think part of the reason why bond yields have stopped going up and the dollar's been weakening, in my opinion, over the last month is that people are starting to fear that this may um, sterilize some of the, the stimulus that's yeah. already put in place. And that's a really important point, because what you're suggesting is that the bond market says this actually will will undermine some of the growth potential included in some of the other plans. Again, I know we're, we're reading a lot into a few basis points, but that it's kind of moving in that direction. Mark, the really interesting thing about the muni market is that it's absolutely salivating at these prospects. So the worse the tax burden looks, the more that state and local governments and stadiums and all go, great, that means more and more investors will want to come finance our projects. And maybe that's how we end up getting an infrastructure bill passed unofficially. I think that's right, Kelly, and welcome back. Um, I think that the muni market hasn't seen this type of environment in quite a while. You're seeing a lot of t uh, tailwinds. You're seeing that the Fed and tre Treasury since last year has showed, said they're going to have uh, continued support for the space. Then you've got the fact that we're going to raise taxes, uh, and that means more revenue. Uh, and then you've got an infrastructure bill in the $2 trillion range. That's primarily going to benefit states. And so there you have another... Um, added benefit there. And then finally, you know, Treasury yields um, they, uh, should be insulated due to the yield spread and scarcity of munis. I'm trying to find you know, so good municipal bonds for clients now. Very difficult. What that tells me is there's a lot of upside um, in the municipal bond market. So we're telling our clients preemptively right. to start considering buying munis in the state that you're in. Always keeping in mind that you got to uh, look for, you know, triple A, double A munis. But Mark, but do you see my point, though? It's kind of ironic that at the same time we're debating a, an infrastructure bill. If we go ahead with these tax increases, you could get this huge possible infrastructure boon anyway, because money will be pouring into the municipal bond space. I mean, I, you know, it, it kind of would work to unofficially achieve some of those same goals, albeit in a really roundabout way. Right. But I don't think that this is just the I think this is the beginning of higher taxes. I don't think this is the end. Um, so if you are in that camp that taxes can just go higher, historically, they're really low. In 1944, top marginal rate was like 90 percent. You know, we've got a lot of possible uh, rates to go, especially if you see out of Washington that there's an appetite to continue to tax millionaires. And so if that, as long as that's the case, I would say that munis are a great place to be in this environment. All right, Jason. So if 90 percent is now, uh, you know, on the table, no one paid 90 percent because of the deductions. Go ahead. And, yeah. And you should also remember that we didn't even have an income tax on a regular basis until 1914 uh, in this country. And I, I think we have to be really careful uh, with the financial engineering from the federal government uh, that the the tax code is uh, clocking in around three and a half million words. Uh, the Bible's about 800,000 words, Old and New Testament. I, I, think we're, I, I think we're being a little too cute by half. Uh, I, I think we should stop meddling as much as we are. We know what we want to achieve. We, we do have to pay for it, of course. Uh, but I think the more complex these systems get, 
um, the the more likely it is for capital to go on strike. Yeah. Uh, and you saw that in the late 30s, and, and I'm afraid we might see that again next year if we, again, get too, um, get too complex in what we're trying to achieve. That's all well and good, Jason. But if you, let's say I wanted to bet on the side of it's just going to get more complicated because that seems to be just what yeah. happens and more and more layers. So real, real quickly boil it down. You're talking to you know, people about where to put their money in the market, maybe sectors, strategies. What would you say is now your best advice as to kind of how you can take advantage, if you want to put it that way, or, or whatever, of this evolving environment? Well, well the, big, the biggest changes are not, in my opinion, not just uh, capital gains, but also a, move, a movement back towards a worldwide tax system, which would have a big impact on tech, a deleterious effect on, on, uh, on technology and healthcare. Um, my own opinion, we're telling our clients finally, is just there is a lot of real estate between now and when this will actually get passed, which will probably be before Labor Day. Uh, so I wouldn't be making a lot of moves right now. There's a lot of moving parts here. Yeah. There's a lot of negotiations to go. Uh, but this is a potentially very big change. Yeah. And Mark, I know you're not really saying 90 percent, but I mean, it, it's we're, t- you know, if that's the seal, I'm just saying you're right. There's a we could go. We could keep going higher. But, um, you know, uh, anyway, we'll leave it there. Gentlemen, well, Mark Smith. Historically speaking, we are at some of the lowest rates in American history. So if you just 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 Google and see where where tax rates have been, you'll see that for a fact. And so in an environment where there is no political will to uh, keep taxes low, you know, you always have to, have, as an investor, be aware of that. Yeah, I understood. Mark Smith, Jason Trenner, thank you guys both. Appreciate it today. As the top issue, although stocks are climbing back into positive territory, higher taxes is making J.P. Morgan less bullish. For the firm's suggestions to clients, head to cnbc.com slash pro. Coming up, we'll talk about the crypto collapse. Bitcoin below $50,000 for the first time since March. Regulatory pressure and the potential, uh, potential for a big tax hit are dampening sentiment. Are we setting up for another 2018 slide? Plus, if you're looking for yield, you may want to head to the mall. We'll explain. The exchange is back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Bitcoin is selling off on a potential capital gains tax hike and on fear of regulation. It fell below 50000 for the first time since early March. It's down 19% this week on pace for its worst week in more than a month. Ethereum, the second biggest crypto after Bitcoin, also taking a hit today, down about 7%. Joining me with more are Emily Parker, the co-host of First Mover on Coindesk TV, and Ryan Selkis, the CEO of crypto asset data company Misari. Welcome to both of you. Emily, how much of this do you think is uh, is tax selling related and how much because it was already underway is uh, the kind of correction we might see in any asset class? 
Yeah, I think with Bitcoin, you never know. With cryptocurrency, you never know. But there definitely is a chance that some people are thinking, okay, taxes are going to go up. I have some long-term unrealized gains. I better sell now before the taxes hit. There is that possibility. But we've been seeing a lot of rumors of regulation that have been deeply spooking the crypto markets. There were some rumors floating around that Janet Yellen was going to put these taxes on, on capital gains on crypto, which do not seem to be verified. So I think the larger narrative here is that the crypto market is just really spooked by any fear of government interference or government intervention in the markets. Yeah, fair enough. Ryan, it's also been on such a run. I mean, it went kind of straight up to 63. So you have to expect this kind of volatility. Is it possible that this will bring in a wave of new buyers of people who say, I mean, you know, given you don't have to buy the whole thing, you can just buy exposure any which way at this point. Um, Just those who look at this as a buying opportunity. Yeah, I think that's right. And if you look at the performance just year to date, the total crypto market cap is still up 100 percent. Bitcoin is still up 65 percent. So even though we've come back about 25 percent, that's just the normal course of volatility. If you look at any other time period outside of the one week, the 24 hour, the one month, uh, Bitcoin and crypto writ large are still the highest performing asset classes and the highest performing mega assets. So this could be a good buying opportunity. The other thing that I'll note is if you look at prior cycles, the time that crypto has gotten into trouble and when it's really marked a local top has been when it's risen too steeply, too fast. And believe it or not, even though we've had a major run up this year, we haven't seen something analogous to the last couple of cycles where the local top and that cyclical top was really marked by a doubling of the Bitcoin and Ethereum price in less than a week which is an insane pace of growth. We haven't seen anything close to that. So sure. I think um, if you're looking for a blow off top, this probably isn't it. It's probably just the, the usual course of volatility. And um, and we'd actually expect in a typical bull cycle to have six pullbacks of about 30% or more. We've had about three so far versus six in 2017, for instance. So you're, uh, to put it kind of, to put a point on it, would say still bullish, um, if I may. But Emily, I, I guess the- Zoom out. Yeah, <laughs> the, the regulatory point is really interesting because when you look uh, anecdotally around on TikTok and see people's reaction to the capital gains tax and how it might affect, you know, their holdings of crypto, they go, ah, if anyone asks, just say you forgot the password. You don't own it anymore. I mean, it's kind of filled with these coy, you know, here's a, you can get around the IRS type of things. And, and I do wonder how that plays out. You know, maybe it's not capital gains tax, but is there some, you know, more severe regulation coming that would have a bigger impact on the market and, and really do more to chase off potential buyers? Sure. I mean, that is the $2 trillion question because, you know, as the crypto market gets bigger, regulators are going to start paying more attention. Tax collectors are going to start paying more attention. This is the other side of the coin. Everybody wants crypto to go mainstream, but when something goes mainstream, it's subject to mainstream rules like taxes. But I think, you know, in the United States, I think the biggest risk to the cryptocurrency industry is a lack of regulatory clarity. There are just a lot of people that are really confused about how crypto taxes work or, you know, money transmitter licenses, for example, for cryptocurrency exchanges vary state by state. There's a lot of murkiness about if something is a security or not. And I think that is really dangerous to the industry because if you don't know where the rules are, you could accidentally break them or you might not even want to take that risk. And that is actually in the past have caused some cryptocurrency startups to leave the United States. So yeah. I think this is probably the biggest risk that we're looking at going forward. Ryan, quick final word. I think the Dogecoin run up, especially with Doge Day and all the rest of it, the last, I mean, did, did that tell you things were getting too frothy? Um, and if so, do you say to people, you know, Bitcoin's kind of the one you look at in a pullback like this or, you know, I guess what jumps out to you as, as kind of an attractive opportunity? 
Well, I think for better or for worse, when you look at these cycles historically, everything rises at the same pace. And then when the tide goes out, you start to see which assets actually have some, some long-term interesting fundamentals. So I think as we look around the asset class, Bitcoin and Ethereum are obviously your bellwethers. But if you think about this capital gains issue, one of the unintended consequences might be that more capital is locked in this crypto ecosystem yes. long term and medium term. And, and ultimately, that's going to be to the benefit of this entire new class of assets uh, that are referred to as DeFi assets, essentially being able to borrow against existing crypto holdings rather than sell them and trigger a taxable event. You might have structurally higher interest rates. You might have a, a, a better uh, tax setup to yeah. invest in those assets and those protocols and, and that ecosystem versus taking money out of the equation. So I, I still think that there's a lot of upside in this market and we're just seeing the very tip of the iceberg, just need uh, a little bit uh, more of a long-term holder base and long-term mindset. No, it's a great point. Bearish in the short term, maybe bullish in the long run. Um, I was just looking up DeFi the other day, so I think we're going we're gonna to do more on that soon. Thank you both for now. Emily Parker and Ryan Selkis talking about crypto and some of the opportunities there. Coming up, the audio-only wars are heating up with this stock being declared the winner. We'll tell you the name and why. Plus, the real estate reopening trade. It's not what you might think. The surprising companies with the biggest returns in this space? That's next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. We've seen a rebound in the markets today, despite the capital gains tax issues we were talking about with Bitcoin. There's no correlation uh, right now, although even crypto's turned a little bit better the last hour or so. And you can see that with the Dow. It's up 223 points. So we're close to session highs. Uh, S&P's up 45. NASDAQ pretty strong, up 200 points. That's one and a half percent. You look across the sectors, kind of rounds out that picture. Most of them are in the green today. Financials, industrials, and technology are in the lead. Staples, the only one in the red. And as you can see here, communication services, materials, all of them benefiting to the upside. There's been a lot of focus on beaten up places in the market that are rebounding sharply on the expectation of things getting back to normal. Most of that attention is focused on things like travel, leisure, those kinds of companies. Don't forget about the real estate sector, though. Dom Chu is over at the wall with today's sector nominees. Dom. Kelly, so specifically certain parts of the real estate market. Now, you take a look at the real estate picture overall. It's the smallest sector in the S&P 500. It's only worth about two and a half percent in total weight. But if you look at the way it's performed so far this year, it's outperformed the broader market. The real estate sector is up about 16 percent. The S&P 500 is up about roughly 11 to 12 percent. It's the third best performing sector in the S&P in 2021. Within that real estate realm, it's retail oriented real estate, brick and mortar. It was supposed to be dead. Well, it's come back to life since the pandemic lows. Yes, all off a very low base and no, not back to pre-pandemic levels. But look at this performance here. Kimco Realty, Simon Property and Regency Centers are all companies that either work in or manage around commercial real estate for retail companies, shopping malls, shopping centers, that sort of thing. Kimco's up 34% year to date. Simon Property up 35%. Regency Centers up 35% as well. And it's not just a capital appreciation story off those lows that we saw last year. There's also a dividend yield component to many of these stocks as well. They do pay above market dividend yields. Take a look at some of these ones for Kimco, for instance. We're talking north of 3%. 
Simon Property, 4.5%. Regency Setters, 3.8%. Kimco, 3.3% as well. So capital appreciation, Kelly, alongside some of these dividends. There's a reason why retail has become at least a bit more of an interest point for traders in this so far 2021 year. Yep, absolutely. Dom Banks, let's get over to Wilfred Frost now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Wilf. Hi, Kelly. President Biden has wrapped up a two-day climate summit with a call to create millions of jobs in clean energy and technology to drive the economy and fight climate change. The White House says Biden's first official trip overseas will be to the UK and Belgium. Biden's set to attend a G7 summit in Cornwall, England, and a NATO summit in Brussels. And time is running out for the search for a missing Indonesian sub and its 53 crew members. Navy officials say it has less than a day's supply of oxygen left. More than two dozen ships are taking part in the search. And experts are looking into new ways to help police de-escalate crisis situations by training them to use different parts of their brains. Find out more on those new methods tonight on The News with Shepard Smith. That's your CNBC News update for this hour. Back to you. Thank you, Wolf. We'll see you soon. Coming up, driving up pay, a back-to-school bump, winning the social audio wars, and a retail roster change. It's all coming up in rapid fire. But first, it's Friday, and that means it's time to look ahead to what's in store for your money next week. Here's your Friday Fast Forward. Social search and spending. It's a huge week for earnings. Big tech is on deck with Facebook, Alphabet, Apple, Amazon, Twitter, and Microsoft all reporting. The sector is up nearly 10% this year. Other names out with earnings include Visa, MasterCard, Starbucks, Boeing, McDonald's. We'll get a read on the energy sector. When ExxonMobil and Chevron deliver results, oil prices are up 15% over the past three months. The Fed meeting kicks off on Tuesday with a rate decision announced Wednesday. Plus, Endeavor is set to go public. The UFC owner valuing itself at $10 billion in its latest filing. Pending home sales and the Case-Shiller Index will give us a look at how tight the housing market is. And Tesla will report earnings on Monday, a week after its technology comes into question after a deadly crash. Investors will be paying close attention to Elon Musk's commentary. That's your Friday Fast Forward. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar right now. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here with me today, dear Jabosa, Courtney Reagan, and Tim Seymour are welcomed. He's the chief investment officer of Seymour Asset Management and, of course, a CNBC Fast Money trader. First topic today, it is a good time to be a driver for Uber or Lyft. The companies are so desperate for drivers, they're reportedly upping wages to more than 40 bucks an hour in major cities. That's nearly double what most made before the pandemic. New data shows Lyft and Uber were up more than 75 percent in the last week of March versus the first week of the year. And that's thanks to increasing vaccinations, easing of travel restrictions and more. And dear, dear, anecdotally, my mother-in-law has was talking the other day about how she had to go with Lyft instead of Uber because there's no Uber drivers. They think it's also going back to the competition with unemployment benefits. And it's just created a weird user experience and maybe a really good situation for the drivers who do show up right now. Kelly, it's a great time to be a driver. It is not such a great time to be a customer. That experience from your mother-in-law is increasingly common. Huge weights. Um, It has really sort of hurt the customer experience. But on the plus side, yes, this is great for drivers. I've been reporting on these companies for years when drivers say that they are not getting paid enough. But how does this all shake out? That's a really key question. I mean, Uber is already spending $250 million earmarked for this sort of stimulus package to entice drivers to come back to the platform. 
your mother-in-law switched to Lyft. That is really interesting. Is Lyft going to take advantage of this moment right. to grab more market share? Are we going to see the companies spending on discounts for riders next? How does that cloud that ever-important profitability picture that we love to talk about. I mean, Tim, to my ears, it sounds like a terrible investment. I mean, how, how this has to be horrendous for margins. It's driving customers away. What's the trader's take? Well, look, I think they're passing a lot of this on to the customer. Uh, Deirdre talked about, you know, who's ultimately paying the price. I, look, this may be unpopular. I, I actually love that Uber has spent the investments on transportation and obviously uh, in the delivery and logistics businesses. Don't think they're given enough credit. It was all the reason people didn't want to own in their business. And, and the fact that they may or may not be profitable by the second half of 2021, I think is less relevant when I consider uh, their transportation business as a whole and the scale here and, and the logistics investments. Think about Amazon. Think about how they were uh, either allowed to do this or in some cases punished for their lack of profitability. I, I think Uber is very investable here. And, and I think, again, that AK they filed on April 12th told you just how strong the, the, the March month, this first quarter numbers that are coming out on May 5th. I, I think this will be a catalyst for the stock. And I think a break of 60 hmm. is something you buy. All right. It's 57 and change. Court, I want to ask you about this because we're going to talk retail next, but maybe this even gets more to the heart of what's going on right now. Wages in retail are under the same amount of pressure that they are for Uber drivers. You know, it's the same situation to show up and work in, let's say, a shopping mall as it is to drive an Uber right now. And I imagine that's got to be creating a lot of headaches. I was just thinking if you are a server at a restaurant or you're a retail worker on the floor of a department store, what's more enticing to go back to those jobs, unemployment or drive for Uber or Lyft if they're really talking about these kinds of wage increases? Mm -hmm. And I have to think that that has to be somewhat attractive, especially when you can make your own hours, much more so than if you're working for someone else. With Lyft and Uber, of course, oftentimes you're you're working for yourself. So I can only imagine this is going to add to retail's headache yeah. as they start to um, re-expand and the employees that they have back on the floor. Yeah, and let's stay on this topic because we're starting to get into summer and back to school season. Yeti and Dick's Sporting Goods got a big call today from Cowan. They upped their price target on both after digging through Google and other online search data. According to Comscore, mobile traffic for Dick's was up 50% last month. It nearly doubled for Yeti, and they think both should benefit as we kind of move into the summer court. By the way, we went to Dick's for a softball glove the other day. They were, like, completely sold out. <laughs> like, we paid, like, $80. <laughs> I did not know they were that expensive. Yeah, you know, I've actually heard stories about lines outside of Dick's Sporting Goods, and it's not just Dick's Sporting Goods and Yeti, I think, that is getting some of this boost. You know, I speak often with the CEO of Land's End, and he said anything that we're selling, or, or L.L. Bean, excuse me, anything that we're selling that has to do with the outdoors is just super popular. And it has been since sort of later in the pandemic when people started <laughs> being able to feel freer to leave their homes. Mm -hmm. They started in the backyards. Then they started, you know, on the hiking trails. And so I think there is really something to this outdoor trend, whether it's a Little League glove or it's, you know, a hiking camelback or these Yeti coolers that are yeah. very expensive. But if you're going to get the use out of them, people are saying, hey, I'm not spending money on other things. Why not plow the investment into a cooler? And Tim, it's interesting because this to me almost feels like the pandemic hedge play. There's been all of this back and forth about do you want to stick with the reopening stocks or the ones that are kind of the pandemic plays. And you'd think that kind of the Dick's trade is over, but this is saying, no, it's not because, and, and it was interesting, we were talking yesterday about real estate and how the Hamptons is strong. And Barry Knapp, I was emailing with it, he said, yeah, it's going to be strong in Colorado. It's going to be strong in Vail. 
And the reason why is people still can't travel internationally, right? There's still this sense of, okay, maybe we can get yep. out, we can, we can play in the outdoors, but we're not going back to what, you know, was previously normal. Well, clearly you are. I don't want to get too far away from your softball glove here and, and just try to understand. Yeah. I mean, is it the hot corner? You, 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 you behind the dish, you center fielder. What are you doing? Um, very interesting stuff. Um, I think COVID was a, has been a total uh, you know, boom for dicks. And it, it is a case where I think the, the proof is really uh, where can they be in 22? I think they've got a lot to prove going forward. This is a stock that's effectively doubled. It's not terribly expensive. It's, you know, roughly 14 times uh, 21, uh, you know, EPS. And I think it's a, it's a case where, uh, look, the experiential part of walking into a Dick's Sporting Good is also part of what I think is really uh, the reopening trade for them. And, you know, they've got a driving range in one of their stores, which sounds incredibly scary when you consider how I hit the ball at the driving range. Um, but I, I, I do, I actually like the story here. It's all been right. a great run. All right. We're going to switch gears. As my, I believe me, I could talk about this all day. And my dad gave him the acronym <laughs> HELP. It stands for like head positioning and elbow control. I don't know. I've learned a lot uh, in the past week. But let's shift and talk about what's going on with the social audio wars, because we've got a call from Jeffries on a clear winner here. The firm initiating coverage of, yes, Spotify with a buy rating, a $360 price target. That's 25% upside. They're saying Spotify is more platform than streaming experience and should become the destination for content creators. Now, this comes as Apple announced plans to enter the premium podcast space starting next month, and Facebook just unveiled a suite of new social audio products. Dear Joe, you know, I just love reading him. Ben Thompson had a great note out about uh, this this week, and and the opportunity for Spotify kind of never should have been there. It should have been apples for the taking, and yet here comes Jeffries reiterating that they're the ones in the best position right now. Yeah, Kelly, I, I read that Ben Thompson note as well, and it was great. His argument was that. Spotify is an audio-first platform, so they are set to dominate, to dominate. However, I would not count Facebook out, right? They, they just announced their suite of audio tools, and they're going to rely on groups, which, you know, may be an underrated part of that platform. 1.8 billion people are using groups every single month when they bring in live audio and podcasts. Um, I think that they could be a real contender. Tim, would you own Spotify here because of their head start advantage or do you sell them because now here comes the big tech competition? I think they're they're continuing to take a lead, and they've certainly distanced themselves from the Pandoras of the world and whatnot. Like they report on the 28th, I, I think the, the valuation is challenging here. Stocks done kind of nothing after doubling from uh, you know May through February, and and it, look the excitement around this you know billion dollar uh, advertising market and in, in podcasts, I think is I think a lot of it's in the price. As as you know, this happens to be a pretty happy day in the markets today. But uh, high multiple tech has been more. Uh, I think scrutinized, and I think going over the next couple of quarters, this is one. I, I love their positioning. The strategic battle you described with mm -hmm. Apple is one. I think they're doing fine, um, but the multiple is not what I'm going to chase into those numbers. All right, it's still up seven percent today. By the way, Apple up two and a half percent. And yep. finally, gold medal gymnast Simone Biles is leaving Nike after six years to partner with Gap's Athleta brand. We just talked to Athleta this week. Uh, saying it will provide her a platform to empower women. No word on the value of the contract, but Athleticist Biles will have her own performance line, including products to wear to and from the gym. Just the other day, Athleticist CEO told Courtney, its focus on women does give it a leg up on the competition. Listen. We are focused solely on women and girls, and 
we think that really sets us apart. You know, we talk about being for women by women and just really understanding who she is, what her needs are, um, you know, and so that is something that uh, we think is actually an advantage for us as we focus on our mission of empowering women and girls. And Court, it seems like the biggest blunder from Nike lately was the whole issue with Allison Felix and her pregnancy, which really brought uh, some of these concerns to a highlight. And, and Nike, I think, had recently moved to say, you know, now we're going to do all extra measures for pregnant women. But Athleta has certainly seized this opportunity. Yeah, I, that's exactly what came to mind, Kelly, when I first heard about this switch for Simone Biles, even though it's not the same circumstances, right. just that it's another woman that is leaving Nike, going somewhere else, going to Athleta. And uh, we got a statement from the CEO, even though she was just on the air, and she's saying, look, we're not just supporting Simone as an athlete, we're support, supporting her as a whole person. She's not just one of the most decorated gymnasts, she's a change maker. And I just think it's very interesting what they're offering Miss Biles uh, in a life really beyond gymnastics because we all know that that career is usually a short one, right? You're done often as a teenager. Um, and so it looks like there'll sort of be more life to just the way that Simone lives her life in a wellness and healthy kind of way that she'll be able to extend with Athleta. And in response to that question, um, really my, my question to the CEO was the why don't you have a men's line? Because yeah. they do yeah. just focus on women and girls. And she pointed it out as a strength. And it's interesting, Tim, because this reminds me, if you go back to the Nike Under Armour wars for, you know, paying hundreds of millions of dollars to athletes and to brand locker rooms at universities, and that blew up for Under Armour, I mean, in, in many ways. But Athleta's mission is different. I, we don't know the price tag, but perhaps uh, in this way, it's a much more sustainable uh, war for them, if you want to call it that. I'm sure they wouldn't. It is. Um, and obviously athleisure and what we've seen coming out of COVID and, and apparel and some of these trends, I think, are probably more here to stay. Simone Biles is, is brand gold. Um, I think the, the dynamic here is one where really, again, you're looking at, 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 at Gap and trying to decide what to do with stock after going from seven to 33. I mean, who needs to own crypto when you can own, you know, restructured <laughs> retailers? Um, and in the case of this one, I mean, look, again, uh, accelerating trends that needed to happen there are very, very strong. I think a lot is priced in. Um, love her as a brand spokesperson. Uh, don't know if I love the stock. All right. Final quick word, Deirdre. I will take out a piece of this news that I thought was really interesting. Biles said that Athleta will support a post-Olympics tour that she is planning to mount herself. So there's another angle here, <laughs> entrepreneurship for athletes. Is this another way of taking the brand into her own hands? Could we see other athletes follow very smart on Athleta's part there? That I think. is a and great point. Maybe the start of something else. It's the YOLO economy, and Biles is part of it. Uh, guys, thank you all today. Dear Jabosa, Tim Seymour, and Courtney Thanks, Reagan. Man. Still ahead, what do Dollar Tree, Tractor Supply, and Berkshire Hathaway all have in common? All three work with on-demand pay service Daily Pay. The CEO will join me to talk about the ongoing labor shortage next. Welcome back. Job openings are at a two-year high. And as businesses face a nationwide worker shortage, they're pulling out all the stops to entice prospective employees. One tool they're using is called Daily Pay. It is what it sounds like. It's a platform that lets workers access or save their pay without having to wait for payday. In fact, employees stay 45% longer at their jobs when they have access to this service. Joining me now is Jason Lee. He is the CEO and founder. Jason, first of all, how exactly does this work? <laughs> Well, thanks, Kelly. And uh, by the way, welcome back. Thank you. Um, DailyPay is a New York-based technology company, and we work with enterprises and Fortune 500 companies in really just about every industry you can name, from healthcare to restaurants to retail. 
the way it works is that employers leverage our technology to really offer their employees, I mean, truly a life-changing experience. It's something that we call on-demand pay. Said simply, employees can now access any part of their pay instantly as they earn it without having to wait for a lump sum on a scheduled payday. Through our technology, any employee can now see exactly what her accrued earnings are and at a tap of a button have access to any part of those earnings 24-7-365. It's not a payback. There's not a loan. There's just your money. And we're delivering that to you on demand. Well, and I'm, I'm looking through here because, you know, there's always a catch. And I, I love this. And, and we should know it. It's pretty ubiquitous at this point. I mean, according to these stats, one in six grocery workers in this country are using it. Seven out of ten top fast food chains. It saves people tons of money on overdraft and, and not available funds fees. I totally get that. I, I guess the but, if I'm reading this correctly, is that um, there is, to some extent, a fee, a $2.99 fee uh, to transfer up to 100% of unearned income, $1.99 for next day. Um, you know, you annualize that. I can see how, you know, it, it still is a burden. So does this ultimately help or hurt the low-income earner? Yeah, so it's a, it's a terrific question, Kelly. I guess the way we think about it is in the new digital world, this whole concept of payday is a fairly antiquated concept. Let me draw an analogy for you. If you went to your checking account and you saw a bunch of money there and you went to an ATM machine, and you tapped a few buttons and you paid the ATM machine a few dollars to essentially access your money, none of us would think any differently about that. And so what our technology is really doing is it's making your pay real time. Right. It's like a checking account. But it does And I know that sounds a little bit complicated, yeah. but that's essentially what's occurring here. And so a lot of our users just analogize this to, I already got paid, and here I'm paying a small fee to actually access those funds as I would with any other checking account. My, so final question, can we get to a point, Jason, and do we need the banking system to get there or employers or payroll systems to get there? Why couldn't we get paid? I mean, it, it does seem archaic, this idea of a two-week <laughs> pay cycle. Why couldn't we get paid continuously in real time? Heck, minute by minute. Well, look, that's our vision. Um, and that's really the world that we're designing. We see an entirely new financial system where pay is, in fact, real time. The catch, however, Kelly, is it's really hard to do. You know, for my colleagues who work in the payroll industry, it's very, very difficult to kind of get all the pieces to work together, whether it be the funding or the technology yep. uh, or the risk and compliance. So that's what we do. We essentially offer the employee the ability to access daily pay without the employer having to run payroll daily. And that's really the concept behind Daily Pay. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. And I'm glad to have you on this week because we're talking about how this can be one way to in increase employee retention. And that seems to be the number one issue right now. Everybody from Chipotle to the hospitality industry offering bonuses if you stay on 90 days. Um, this is another way to maybe attract and keep those workers. Jason, thanks for joining me. We'll check back in soon. Thank you so much, Kelly. We'll talk soon. Jason Lee is the founder and CEO of Daily Pay. Coming up, the rubber is not hitting the road as headwinds face the rubber industry. There is a shortage. We're going to talk about how that's impacting consumers and the supply chain. But first, it is Financial Literacy Month, and CNBC is sharing messages from thought and business leaders about the importance of financial education. Here's former SEC chair Jay Clayton. In modern society, if you're not educated about credit, savings, and investment, you will not make good decisions. 
Over the course of a lifetime, bad decisions compound, good decisions compound. The earlier you're educated, the better your decisions, the better the outcomes. Welcome back to The Exchange. First, it was toilet paper, then it was grape nuts. Now it's computer chips and rubber. Multiple factors are leading to a major rubber shortage around the world. Seema Modi is here with the details and how that's impacting us all across the U.S. Seema? Kelly, the shortage of raw materials, as you said, first it was paper, plastic, and now we're hearing that rubber is increasingly hard to import for some industries. So what's the problem here? Well, it's multiple factors. A lack of shipping containers, bottleneck caused by the Suez Canal, and a recent surge in demand from end users. Most of the world's natural rubber comes from Southeast Asia, Thailand, specifically the largest producer 15,000 miles away, and due to the shipping delay, some businesses are now using other modes of transportation to import the rubber they need. Consumers who buy direct in Southeast Asia have been utilizing air transport to bring natural rubber those 15,000 miles from Southeast Asia to the United States. Dover, a major industrial, said earlier this week on its earnings call that the global shortage of plastic and rubber as well is driving increased investment in processing plants. Tire maker Goodyear telling CNBC, we are not currently experiencing supply limitations. Supply was tight late last year during the industry ramp up. We took proactive measures to ensure supply met our factory needs. Now, Kelly, some scientists see opportunity here. Dr. Cornish at Ohio State University is developing rubber from plants. She's still two to three years away from getting this to market, though. It'd be great to onshore it. I mean, and Intel last night seemed to saying it could be two years before the chip shortage is resolved. So we're going to be dealing with these headaches, increasingly important ones for a long time. Thank you. Seema Modi with the yeah. latest for us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.